Good evening, dandies. Welcome to Undetermined, the podcast. Okay, so I'll, I'll be Johnny, and you're John. Okay. All right, good, because I was never called Johnny. So Okay, so you're John. That's, that'll, that's, uh, that'll work. I'm a John. That's, that's yep. the voice that goes with John. That's the voice that goes with John. <laughs> right, let's hear, and I am Matt. John's voice. Let's hear Matt's voice for a second. I'm right here. I am Matt. I have always been Matt. I turned on my Wi-Fi, and I'm using these. Uh, uh. I'm, using, I'm sitting up in my bed loft. And there's a fan because it's like 100 degrees here. Or well, shit. It it yeah. was yesterday. Let's see. What is it? What is it here now? It's not. You know what? God, it's only 75 degrees outside. <laughs> wow. But I'm such a wuss. That's a good day lately. Yeah. I well. Okay. So so where are you guys? <laughs> I we're in Missouri. I'm in Columbia, Missouri, which is pretty much right smack in the middle of the state. Okay. You know. Um, Missouri Tigers play here, University of Missouri. It's like uh-huh. College Town, USA, right in the middle. And Matt is in Kansas City. Yep. Which you probably know where that is. Okay. Kansas so, City. Also Missouri. Kansas City, here I come. Yeah. Yes. That one. I have performed that song <laughs> a fair number of times in the last uh in the last ten years. Really? Weddings or well, no. I what? I've got like these weird kind of parallel careers, and I guess any I guess any career in the arts requires, you know, to to have several irons in the fire because it's rare that you're going to have one that that really pays the bills right. in any significant way. Uh, you know, it's funny. I was just texting with my daughter about careers in the arts because she's a budding visual artist. She's 24. And oh, right on. It's funny. I keep telling her kind of the same thing my parents told me, which is uh, maybe you should develop a parallel career, you know. Um, <laughs> right. And, and, and in the in the case of, of my conversation with her, it's a little more nuanced than what went on between my parents and me, because they knew nothing about making a living in the arts other than the fact that it's right. fucking impossible. Right. right. Or, or, or they perceived it as impossible. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, my mom used to say really nasty stuff about a career in music. He, she'd say, you know, the, uh, mm-hmm. she, she said guitar players are a dime a dozen. Right. And she said that the music business is full of nothing but drugs, alcohol, and bad women. Oh, no. And at the, mm-hmm. well, right. And at the, the age I, <laughs> at the age I was when she said all that, <laughs> right. All that, that didn't sound like a bad. That deal. all just sounded like okay. I'm I'm going there. I I don't you know. That's where it is. Yeah, I've been looking for that. <laughs> I don't know. Like the psychology wasn't really working in her favor. I, right. Well, because you know they talk about reverse psychology, and the conversation I've been having mm-hmm. with my girlfriend lately is that it's just psychology. It's not reverse psychology. <laughs> right, it's the same thing. <laughs> you just have to have your you just have to have your head screwed on straight about what you're actually doing when you're saying something to a person, you know, and right. And as a parent, it's really, you know, and it's just funny to find myself preaching like that to my daughter, like, don't do what I did, you know? (laughs) Right. That's hard. I mean, you know, I, yeah, I've done visual art my whole life and it's just like, I was always told that, well, you know, go out and look for something where you can get a paycheck, you know, do that in your spare time. Well, do you, You that's all well and good. Do you do visual art for a living though? No, I don't. Mm-hmm. Nope. I never got into it. I think I was really swayed by that just because it was the kind of Midwestern thing where it, when you come out of Northern Illinois uh, in a cornfield, wow. born, your chances of really getting out there is like a painter, <laughs> you know, or right. maybe a house painter. Right. Maybe a house painter. Yeah. Well, yeah, there, yeah. There you go. Just grab the bigger brushes, John. You can, you know, make a living doing this. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. There was no, there was very little encouragement that it was, it was scary. But wait, so are you, are you the one that's a musician? Or are you guys both musicians? Um, well, I was, <clears throat> I was a singer a long time ago, like in high school. I, I fiddle around with a guitar, uh-huh. um, somewhat. So, and we both really just like music right. a lot. And that was a DJ. I was a DJ for many years. Mm-hmm. So did you, were you guys aware of Psychofungopus at the time? I was. Uh, I, I think yeah. I kind of introduced. You introduced me to Psychofungopus. Yeah. Oh, probably what, 10 years oh. ago, something like that. Oh, no, more than that. Did either one of you guys see us when, did either one of you guys see us when we came through? No, I never got a chance to see I you guys. I don't think anytime you came through, I would have gone had I known mm-hmm. you were anywhere 
close to me. Um, well, man, my I, college we, years were in yeah. Springfield, Springfield, Missouri, uh, Carp- Cape Girardeau, uh-huh. Missouri. So, yeah. um, you know, at that time, you didn't have internet to tell you everything that was happening everywhere. Right. Well, that's um, right. So, if you guys did, you guys ever come through there? Or? Well, you didn't have yeah, any yeah. chances. You know, I, I think yeah. we, I think we were in Missouri once. Yeah, that would have probably done it for us. And I and I know, <laughs> I know we Our went shots to, would have been lower down that. Right. Yeah. Well, we went to Kansas City at least once, um, mm-hmm. but it was Kansas City. Yeah, it was, let's see. Well, I don't think we ever played Kansas City, Kansas. We played Kansas City, Missouri. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's that what works. But yeah. we didn't. Oh, where are now? But right back then, it would be a four-hour drive. We didn't so. tour long, you know. We we had a really we had a really short kind of. Oh God, how, how I don't even know how to describe it. So so you guys found a Psychofungal Bus record. Was it the first one or the second one? For me, it was the first one. Mm-hmm. And I can yeah. kind of tell you how I came upon it was my freshman year of college, which would have been 89, 90 would have been that mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and back in those days, you just kind of had to come upon music yeah. to really find it. And I, I just got into college. I was in a college town and I go to the music store and I'm. Mm-hmm. Just asking the guy there, what's something different, man? Because I'm I'm curious what else is out there that I haven't been exposed to in small town southern Missouri where I'm from. Yeah, and he's like, you should check these guys out. Well, I guess I guess I have him to thank for this phone interview. Then, yeah. Well, and another thing too is that when he introduced um, you guys to me, we were both fans of, of just Bay Area metal and funk metal and funk music at that time. Does that mean Primus or or Faith No More or both? Mr. I was a big yes. Mr. Bunglehead. Still, I'm a mis- big Mr. Bunglehead. Well, um, our, yeah, we, our our trajectory in in relation to Primus and Mr. Bungle was actually really uh-huh. funny. And there's yeah. there's a couple there's a couple funny stories about that. I oh I, I want to hear them. I don't I don't know any <laughs> of those guys very well, but I know I know a little bit about what the guy what the guitarist has been doing since then with. Secret Chiefs, uh-huh. and I have a friend that played in that band, played in Secret Chiefs three, and that is some serious stuff. Yeah, that is some really cool stuff. I mean, you know, the whole scene. I mean, like, kind of splintered out into a whole bunch of different stuff, and right. And I felt like, you know, this is an interesting conversation when you're talking about how you discovered music before the internet, right? And yeah, and 1989, 1990 is definitely before the internet. And mm-hmm. I mean, you could you could say ninety five is really the year that the internet kind of began. Kind of broke, kind of right, but it was still a lot more archaic at that right. time. Yep, it was, and and you know, I don't know how much you guys really want to know, but my you know my life went a through lot. Some crazy, crazy ups and downs and and yeah. changes, and you know, I hadn't ever lived apart from my mom's house until the band mm-hmm. had a record deal wow you know so so that's kind of a weird trajectory like normally you yeah. might go out and kind of live in an apartment with some roommates and learn how to like make freaking <laughs> eggs <Exactly>. shit, right? <laughs> yep exactly. right but like think things things happen in a really bizarre order for me kind of and i ended up i realized that we're skipping around but i ended up having a kiddo right in 1995, you know, who totally changed my life and who's like my best friend now. And, you know, we're, we're buds and we're, you know, father, daughter. And she's like I was saying before, she's a visual artist. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've done my best to teach her music, but I didn't try too hard because, you know, I want it to be fun for her if she does it. Right. Anyway, so so back to your guys questions <laughs> <laughs> no that's okay i got kind of caught in that too because i had a kid my first kid in like 1996 mm-hmm. yeah or 97 sorry got married in 96 and then at 97 she's also a visual artist and- oh sweet and and our kids have never lived in a life never lived in a world without the internet my daughter right. points that out to me on a regular basis yeah like- i just yeah i got to thinking about her when you're telling that yeah so you went to the college. Well, okay. So you were listening to college radio and going to mm. college, right? 
Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and we were in this we were in this period of time at that time where there was kind of this new force of college radio. Now, right. I'm sure that there's always been college radio, but from my understanding, there was this whole notion of alternative music. Right. And then there was the and then there was the fact that major record labels were trying to get in on part of the action. Yeah. Like because like, because. Mm-hmm. There had been a lot of indie labels and kind of like grassroots stuff that was connected to college radio and the way that people were marketing themselves. And it almost wasn't marketing, you know, like it was there was a DIY kind of plucky, Mm -hmm. you know, vibe to that, to punk rock and to a lot of the alternative music styles and everything seemed really honest, you know. And then and then what happened was the labels were like, well, shit, half the audience doesn't give a crap about our corporate shit that we're trying to sell everyone. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not they're not trying to listen to whatever new version we've got of, of Journey or, or Loverboy or whatever. You know what I mean? It's like yeah. they're they're bust they're busting out all their all their carbon copies of tried and true formulas that worked before and it's not uh, working for them. Right. So they started forming their own indie labels and doing their own style of marketing through college radio. And and that's yeah. kind of what happened with us, is that like there was this brand new department at Atlantic where it was still a big label, but they were trying to market to college radio uh-huh. and they were doing that with us, even though they were really like unsure what to do with a band like ours. Cause they didn't have much experience with it. Yeah. You know, they, they, they went, Oh, there's white guys and black guys in the band. Uh, <laughs> <Right>. What kind <laughs> of, yeah. I mean, I mean, right. the, I know. Yeah. it just, it blew it blew my mind that that was literally like so confusing right. for them. <laughs> Can you guys do a cover of Ebony and Ivory? Oh, that would be God. so good. That McCartney. Well, yeah, good. you know, and the whole the whole the whole racial element was an issue. And I and I, of course over the years I've had to like mm-hmm. how much of that did did I make it an issue or you right. know I just I ended up forming these you know lifelong friendships with these two guys mm-hmm. you know that have that have just like straight up made me a better person. Like, that's I, awesome. I, I, that's great. I, would know and and, you know that's just because my mom basically conditioned me to do that you know i mean my my parents met at uc berkeley and and my mom was a liberal and her whole idea was well the world is fucked up and you're gonna go out and you're gonna make it a better place right you know no pressure and that's a yeah that's a a little much to to lay on your kid you know exactly um but you know she basically adopted paul the drummer you know like the two of them had this incredible like this absolutely adorable relationship that sounds like matt's mom and me (laughs) (laughs) similar sometimes yeah no so back back to this so back to the beginning back Uh to the local record store so you went to a record store and this guy so check this out. Yeah, and I've wondered since if it was like maybe he had some Bay Area connections because the other band that he tried to turn me on to mm-hmm. uh, was Mordred. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I know that they were kind of contemporaries of yours. Yeah, those guys are all my friends. Yeah. yeah. And they just they nice. just put a new record out actually a little while ago. Yeah. Oh, really? They're, they're they're back in existence, I guess. And, and they made a That's record. That's cool. It's great. Yeah, they made a record recently. Mordred was interesting because they were kind of like the um, – they were the metal end of things, you know, and we were yeah. all we were all into metal. And and the thing I miss the most, and there, sure there are still aspects of this, you know, right. but like the thing I miss the most is that at that time no one gave a shit about style of music. Right, it wasn't clicky. The mm-hmm. scene, the scene was the scene was a scene, you know, and mm-hmm. it had some of the problems that any scene will have. But what was cool about it is that you'd be just as likely to go out and hear like a traditional reggae band or a dub right. band yeah. or a ska band, you know, and, and and then you'd go out and see a metal band and, and all the musicians knew each other. It didn't matter what the style of music was. In fact, people that were in kind of our side of things, mm-hmm. if you wanted to call it thrash funk, you know, once again, the media comes up with these right. names for things. Yeah. It's never, it's never the musicians. Yeah. Like, you know, no one ever called himself a hippie until the New York Times decided that was a word, right. you know? So it's like, we were hippies right. and we were into ska and reggae and funk and all these styles of music that we, you know, knew varying degrees right. about, you know? We didn't, we weren't experts right. on all the styles of music that we played, but everyone in that time in our little circle was trying to try their hand at all these different right. styles, you know? And, and we were kind of one of the hodgepodge mm-hmm. bands. There were a bunch of other ones like us. Primus, I think Primus survived that time because they had their own sound. Yeah. Yeah. You yeah. know, they, that makes sense. And because Les had a shtick. People love right. shtick in showbiz, mm-hmm. right? 
I mean, the reason the reason that he's still going is because it was so easy to imitate in, and mock him back then. You know, defying the laws of tradition. Right. You know, uh-huh. in fact, he spoke to me that way when I was trying to get us our first real gig. Oh, really? Well, yeah, no. I, I went. I went to. <laughs> I, I went to Berkeley Square, which was one of the coolest small clubs yeah. at the time. We liked a lot of bands that came out of there. We, a lot of them, yeah. Well, right. I I went to see Primus open for Faith No yeah. More there. And, oh man, that would have been right. And the thing was, mm. like, Faith No More was already blowing up. I mean, they started blowing up when they still had right. Chuck singing. Right. But Chuck didn't speak, you know, rich guy music business. Right. Chuck was a punk rocker. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, he was. Too. Yeah. And I loved it. Yeah. You know, I loved Chuck, and and I loved their whole vibe and everything but like it's so funny what happens when you see like these kind of prideful rebellious young you know musicians like all of a sudden they're hanging out around a pool at a party with a bunch of rich record executives you know it just things get out of hand yeah i mean mike silverman was talking about that club and just really how it's you know had all these legendary acts but you're just like this is a really small place. Do you know him? Oh, you're talking about that one guy. Yeah, yeah. From the fabulous hedgehogs, and yeah. Uh huh. Totally. Yeah. Did, now, did you hear the hedgehogs? Yeah, I've heard the hedgehogs. We've had him on our show. Yeah. We've had him on the podcast. Oh, yeah. awesome. He's a great yeah. guy. They blew my mind. Great guy. Man. Super talented. He's, dude. Yeah, he's man. It's amazing. He's guy. hilarious. Yeah, yeah, and he's funny. Yeah, we watch radio one guy all the time on Monday. So yeah, I've been checking that out from time to time too. It's it's really cool to Mm -hmm. see kind of his take on how to interface with the public now. Yeah, he's just kind of kind of fearless with it, really. Well, and he's creative. Like I, I like I like the video effects and the fact that he's interacting with it and it's kind of a combination of prepare yeah. and improvised you know and using that magic pipe as like a, a joystick and like you know controls for all that green screen shit it, it's really cool well no it makes me wonder when i when i see him doing that it makes me wonder how many people that are into that persona right. know that the guy is a freaking like killer vocalist like yeah. a real singer yeah. you know and yeah. that he, and that he's a he's a really he's an upright bass virtuoso yeah. Well, we tried to do our part <laughs> to get that. Oh, you mean there. you mean to, you, yeah. you got the heads? Well, no, we got Mike. We just had Mike on for a conversation. Mike, um, yeah. as Mike, telling stories about like recording with uh, Tom Waits and uh, you know his up and coming time there too in the Bay Area. I didn't know that they recorded with Tom Waits. Was that the Hedgehogs? No, no, it was just, just Mike. Just Mike. Yeah. Um, so it's a great story if you check out the podcast. It's, it's <laughs> There's on a story there. in the podcast called "The Ballad of Mikey Two Dicks," and uh, that's the yep. that's the infamous. Tom Waits uh, recording session with Mike, that one guy, Silverman. Yeah. Well, I never, I never did a recording session Mm -hmm. with Tom, but I have had two, I've had, I have two meeting Tom Waits stories. Let's hear at least one of them. Well, one, one of them is from Prairie Sun Studios in Katati. And I mean, the the first one's really quick. I was just standing there in Prairie Sun Studios, you know, Uh wearing long John bottoms only, you know, and and I'm warming (laughs) up on guitar. Like, we had made the first record and we were gearing up to make the second record and we still were a five piece. I, I don't know if you guys noticed that we were a five piece on the four, first record and a four piece on the second record. Right. I can't remember whether he's on those recordings or not. I don't, I don't think he is actually. So we, we were up at Prairie Sun Studios. We had two singers. Right? Yeah. And, and you know, that was a big part of what made the band unique. I thought it was a power trio with two lead singers and, Mm-hmm. And like, you know, Gene played some keyboards and a little acoustic guitar and Manny played percussion. Right. You know, it's like anytime Manny would pick up anything that you could hit with a stick, the whole groove would just like be improved. Uh-huh. He's just one of those incredibly musical people from an incredibly musical background. And, and right. Place. You know, like the whole Puerto Rican salsa element mm-hmm. is just really mm-hmm. heavy. And God, I learned so much about the world just from hanging out with Manny right. and and some of the people I knew after that that played music, you know, people from Brazil and whatnot. But anyway, so I'm standing there kind of warming up on guitar in Prairie Sun Studios while we were, because we'd stayed up there. They've got a really nice accommodation. You know, mm. you wake up to the sound of roosters in the morning. and Oh, cool. Yeah, I mean, it's really cool. You're basically on a farm, you know, and so I go in this nice recording room. I was I was really lucky, you know, the label was paying for us to demo out songs for the second record and and I was playing this blue guitar that's sitting in front of me right now. It's it's in the process of be being restrung for gigs I have tomorrow, oh. you know. And 
the Tom one was funny because I had just totally geeked out on Rain Dogs. Uh -huh. Like, Rain Dogs was so yes. good. And, um, you know, that was really all I was hip to at mm -hmm. that point. And so it's 1991, I guess, and I'm sitting in this studio. I'm standing there, you know, half naked. And, and here comes this guy with a pork pie hat, you know, through the door. And behind him is our engineer, Muka, who's, you know, now one of the owners of that play. Mm -hmm. You know, here, here it was Tom Waits walking into Prairie Sun Studios for the first time. He ended up making four records there, I believe. Yeah. He did Bone Machine, and then he did, he did Alice and Blood Money, yeah. which came out at the same time. And then there was another one. Anyway, so it was Tom coming to right. Prairie Sun Studios to check the place out for the very first time. And I was standing there playing my blue the guitar kind of it's kind of a tacky 1980s heavy metal guitar you know right and i still play them in the cover band because mm -hmm. they're the best guitars i own mm -hmm. <laughs> but you know I, like i said i we got four uh, we got five grand and i still live with my mom and so i didn't have to pay the rent or pay off my car i drove a piece of shit 200 dollars falcon at that you know and somehow miraculously that kept kept running or no i think i was onto the dart oh, that i got for like 400 you know <laughs> Yeah, it was a 74 yeah. dart. You could only get in one side of it because one side of it was completely right. <laughs> caved in from an accident. You know? and, and so I still live with my mom. I spent four grand on the on the guitars. I had two guitars mm -hmm. custom built. And I still got them here. I just... Tom Waits walked um, in. But, but anyway, Tom walked in and I shook his hand and I was a little starstruck because I had been listening to Rain Dogs mm -hmm. and... He spoke in the in the character voice, well, you know, oh, which I found yeah. interesting. Well, yeah, he was like, "Oh boy," oh, nice to meet you. and I was like, "Well, hey, Mr. Waits, I'm a you know, I'm a fan of your, or, I'm a big fan of your work." Said, oh, well, no. <laughs> and then they went on and started looking around. At, Muka's showing him the Neve board or whatever uh -huh. it was they had in there. But but no, I had these two guitars built because uh -huh. I still lived with my mom when we got signed with Atlantic. So I, you know, we each got five grand. Mm. Um, you know, because record deals still did that at the time. I don't know what the fuck they do now, or if there is such a thing as a record deal as an advance or anything. Yeah. Well, I'm sure. I'm sure that you know larger entities take on artists and give them advances, but it's a different kind of uh, system. You know, at that point, it right. was like, you know, you had the label, you had the publisher, you had the booking agent, and you had the manager. You know, now you've got companies that are trying to do all of those things. And you've got all these different vertical freaking marketing, you know, internet. Yeah, and it, it certainly is weird. It's like one of the things that I was thinking about, I was going back and watching a lot of like Psychopunk, vis, uh, Psychopunk Post videos, and it's like, you guys also had to make short films, <laughs> you know, like with MTV and the popularity of that. It's just mm -hmm. sort of a, it, you know, it's not a good or bad thing necessarily. I, I loved music videos. You know, we, we grew up and digested those things. But it's like, how weird is it that you guys also had to make these like mini movies as well right. as what you're doing with music? Well, yeah, and make, making a video at that point was a much different kind of deal, right? Because right. having a camera that would record at broadcast quality, you know, wasn't really that common. And now you've got iPhones shooting 4k and you can right. yeah you could do it at home uh, yeah you can you can do a lot but it's funny how still there's a um you know you can tell when someone's using a pro camera right yeah because there's always going to be higher end stuff you know like there's the consumer and then there's kind of the prosumer level and you know mm -hmm. we had this thing happen where where we had the label kind of trying to get at us right and i think it's because we were kind of a little more poppy than the average kind of San Francisco Bay Area thrash funk band. You know, like, right. like we had vocal harmonies and some songs that were kind of you like dance to your shit. Right. Yeah. Even though it was, you know, you shake your ass to there, it. there were there were songs that there there were songs that did a tempo change in the middle or went from like punk rock to, to funk or, or 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 whatever. I mean, so there was some weird shit, but but then there were also tunes that kind of yeah you could groove out to right. and you didn't have to mosh or you know you could you could dance and then there were all these vocals which you know primus didn't have that you know and, and they they were kind of a little more alternative whereas we had these you know lush harmonies going on and stuff like that which i think made the label kind of a little more interesting yeah. you know like what, what the atlantic came to see uh the limbo maniacs at the fillmore right and and there, it was a show the the untouchables were the headliner the the limbo maniacs were the support act and we were the you know the opener the very beginning opener and we played at like eight o'clock or something and, and it was our first 
and only Fillmore show. And I remember it being so weird for me because I'm looking out in the audience and there's all these teenagers out there. Uh-huh. So there were people in the audience that were closer to my age. You know how when you're that age, like a couple years difference really oh, yeah. matters, whereas it doesn't now. Yeah. So, so when we started playing in bars, I was 17, and there weren't very many people who were calling me on it and trying to kick me out of the bar, you know. <laughs> um, so, so, you know, when I was about 17, 18 is when I started being able to get into all the clubs in San Francisco because I was in a band that was playing there. We weren't headlining yet, but we were playing in all the clubs. And, and so, like, you know, I, like I told you, I went to see Primus open up for Faith No More at the Berkeley Square. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure it was Faith No More. It might have been Fishbone, actually. Yeah. I, you know how you kind of combine, you combine memories yeah. that happen in the same place. So it's like, so yeah, yeah, yeah. it was definitely a night where I walked up to Les at the at the um, at the Berkeley Square. Mm-hmm. Now, now to be clear, any Fishbone show that happened back then was blowing my mind, yeah. and I still think that they are probably the greatest Amazing. band to come out of California in the last forty yeah. years. Like, I mean. They are fun. A lot, a lot of people might argue with me, yeah, but I think that they're a better band than the fucking Eagles. Oh, I, I all right. Yeah, like, I, I mean, if you want to put it like that. Oh man, yeah. You know, they're, that that Fishbone is is not only culturally significant, uh-huh. but like you know, they've written some incredible songs and have some of the most incredible musicians that have been through that Preach. band. Or now they're back to well, now now they're back to. Uh, to a six piece mm-hmm. and they're all original except for one guy. So if I was seeing Fishbone at the at the Berkeley Square, I would have stayed. Whereas Faith No More I wasn't big on. Like like when they started their set, I watched a couple songs and I went, Oh, this is a cartoon right. and I just walked out. Like it just really like the guitar player who I know now and right. he's a cool guy, you know. <laughs> right. It's like I, I all those people are really cool, mm-hmm. you know. everyone that I've met from that band was was great, you know, including mm-hmm. Mike, you know. Although me, me and Mike had kind of a star-crossed thing happen because I was such a clueless kid, you know. <laughs> he's, a, I, he's a big hero. You know, but so so anyway, I walked up. I walked up to Les and I said, "Hey, man, I'm in a band called Psychofunkapus, mm-hmm. and we'd love to open for you guys somewhere in San Francisco." And he goes, Funkapus? Oh, David Lefkowitz, <laughs> you know. And so you know, he answered me in character, and then he kind of turned his head and and walked off. So I. I didn't actually have like a human being interaction with him. It was more like I was a fan, (laughs) you know? And so the next day, totally, it was such a cartoon. It was such a caricature. So the next day I looked up David Lefkowitz in the San Francisco phone book Mm -hmm. and, you know, he's doing great now. He's with AEG. I mean, he, he's managed all these bands that actually made it. And like, you know, he's done all sorts of stuff over the years and has been very successful, you know? But so at the time he was just booking Primus. So I called him and we talked and I told him that Les had asked me to call him and he gave us an opening slot for Primus at the night break on a Friday night. And that was what kind of began our, you know, pretty quick rise through the clubs. You know, like it only took a couple of years in the clubs in the Bay Area before we were really close to headlining. And then when we got the record deal, we started kind of becoming a headliner in bigger places. And yeah. Blah, 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 blah. Right. We saw, yeah, Mike uh, on Radio One Guy, as we were talking about earlier, he was showing a whole bunch of like old flyers from uh, Berkeley Square. Yeah. The other day, remember that, Matt? Yeah. And your name, yeah, Psychofunk, but this day, you guys popped up constant right and that that was the thing that finally i think we were watching we were both watching that episode and that was like i think we gotta get psychophones we got somebody from it's like yeah he's well like, thank oh, you John, John and it's something we've yeah. kind of talked about yeah, it, a lot of yeah. yeah it was crazy fungamongo and um yeah love those guys a lot of great bands played out of there i mean i literally like 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 every member of uh-huh. that band, Funga Mungo, they're my dear friend. If they were here, I would like kiss them on the cheek. Oh, that's nice. I, I nice. absolutely love those guys. And, and, you know, we've all gone our, our different directions, you know, like not all of us in Psychofungal Bus are still really playing music, right? but some of us are, mm-hmm. you know, and everyone's doing well. Everyone's pretty much healthy and happy. You know, in, in Fungo Mungo, you got guys all over the place. But, you know, you mentioned Marjorie mm-hmm. a minute ago. Yeah. And, you know, recently I was in a band called Phantom Power. Um, I did that for about three years. It was a band I formed here with Josh Z from the Protein and the Mother mm-hmm. Truckers. And 
uh, Joaquin Spangerman, who was the drummer for the Blue Chunks. Oh, yeah, Blue Chunks. Hellworms. Yeah. And then uh, I played in cover band. Yeah, and, I was going to ask you about that. Like, uh, Notorious, man. It's great. I've been watching a lot of your videos. Oh, cool. Did you see any of the stuff where we're backing up celebrities? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you guys just played with uh, Mark McGrath, Tone Loke. Um, that was a year ago, and I, I just shared that. <laughs> I thought it was just it was actually, I don't know. I just thought. I think, I think that was the last. <laughs> yeah. You played with John Kay. I wanted to ask you about that. That was so great, man. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> you know, I, I, and I'll tell you, I met a whole lot of celebrities, and I have kind of a policy mm. with people that are celebrities just because yeah. of the fact that I had like a, um, I had a little tiny brush with fame. Man. I wouldn't ever say that I became a celebrity, but I learned what it was like. You got a taste. Yeah, I get it. Well, I got to see, I got to see what it's like to be a person that everyone wants to talk to. And, yeah. and, and I realized that you don't always want to talk to people. <laughs> right. And what's weird is that the people that want to talk to celebrities have this idea in their head of how those celebrities supposed to act and yeah. behave and what they're supposed to they're say. They're make it go and, their way. Yeah. Well, right. And if you fulfill that, then they're happy. But if you don't, <laughs> oh man, like you're fucked because, you know, mm. there's going to be this whole, I don't even know if it has to be sunshine and rainbows all the time because i was so turned off by the music biz when i saw the absolute horror that it actually is <laughs> you know and i was so young and impressionable it like actually really scarred me like it fucked me up i didn't yeah. want to be part of it yeah why don't you guys ask me a question and I'll try <laughs> because this is well, fascinating shit yeah well, I, mean, I mean you're right absolutely because one thing that i think about is just how the shape of the music industry, the music that we're exposed to, we, we have all these great memories of great bands and great recordings and things that, that shape and mold our lives. But we, right, the yeah. thing that's kind of the dark underbelly of that is how much of that is shaped by production, is shaped by money, and, and right. how much shit have we not been exposed to that could have just blown our fucking minds and we never get that opportunity, you know, because of that kind of the biz you know well right for every celebrity that everyone loves the music of there's another 10 or 20 or 100 right. people that are easily that brilliant or yeah. better everyone says oh no if they were that brilliant they would have made it and it's bullshit. like yeah. no actually they didn't yeah they didn't necessarily want to go through that mm -hmm. or things didn't line up for them you know right you don't get the right break i mean the accidental nature of it well i'll use an example you know we're in the midwest right and we we get exposed to like john and i have seen some bands that just fucking were incredible oh yeah yeah that were around us but guess what we're in no town usa mm -hmm. and yep. people don't notice us but once again, we touched on a million things. You know, I, 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 have my, I have my stories I always tell, like my Tom Morello story. and my. Mm. What specifically is most interesting to you about all this? It's all interesting to me. And, and, you know, I did want to ask you about one or two things, though. I saw in discography and just kind of looking at your credits and stuff, you, uh, did you write a song for Idiot Flesh? Is that true? I did. You did. So what are your connections to those guys and Sleepy Time Gorilla Museum? Because I'm a big... Okay, so you're, you know about them because of Sleepy Time, right? I do. I, I went and backtracked. Okay, but, but so, okay, so you became aware of Sleepy Time and then you looked into kind of their past yes, and you saw Idiot, Idiot Flesh. Are you aware of Free Salamander Exhibit? A little. That's the new band. Okay. And and it proves how old I am that I still call them the new band. Right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I hear where you're coming from, yeah. Well, as you get older, time just goes faster. Right. So, it, it, and so, like, Free Salamander Exhibit has been together for a few years. Okay. And I was actually, it was one of those things I looked at and I kind of went, man, I should have been in that band, you know, <laughs> oh, <really>? but, because um, <laughs> I've idolized those guys. I mean, it's really funny, you know, everyone's got their own perspective, right? Yeah. And the whole time I was doing Psych Funkaput, uh, I was looking over at Idiot Flesh and I was going, no, that's real music. Yeah. You know, and I have a, I have a dear friend who was in Idiot Flesh named Eugene Jun, mm -hmm. and I know all the other guys in all that stuff you know pretty in in varying degrees like i know the guys that were in sleepy time pretty well and and i'm involved in a thing called ics which is the immersion composition society okay i joined that in 2003 with a couple of the guys from sleepy time okay dan rath on the bassist and michael melander who is a multi-instrumentalist and songwriter mm -hmm. and a total genius 
And Dan's a genius too. And don't even get me started about Nils. I mean, Nils is just like so. Incredible. Yeah, I invited Nils. I, I kind of like, thought it was a long shot. There's a Jerry Castali interview that's in seven parts. It's really long. You know, you guys know who Jerry Castali is? I do not. Yeah, I'm unfamiliar with Jerry, him. Jerry Castali is is who you might call the number two guy in Diva. Okay. Uh, okay. So, like, everyone knows who Mark Mothersbaugh is because right. he became pretty well known as like the face of Devo and quirky guy with the glasses. Mm -hmm. And then he went on and he did a yep. bunch of movie soundtrack work. But it, but yeah, J Jerry was the other singer songwriter okay. in that band, and he's okay. a bass player. And and there's an interview that he did in as far as like podcasts and and musician mm -hmm. interviews and everything. I would highly recommend. It's it's a little long. Yeah. And it's hard to tell what questions are being answered because it was never edited together and finished. It's just like this raw <laughs> Sounds footage. like our episode sometimes. Well, until we get them finished, yeah. But he's a genius, though. Like, you guys, you got, I learned so much because Devo is one of my favorite bands yeah. since I was like eight years old. And Jerry talks in there about rock and roll and rebellion in, in a way that it blew my mind. I had to play this part over and over again because it's a thought that I had had but i'd never really quite into a finished mm -hmm. form you know meaning like well if i if i put if i grow my hair long and i go to a leonard skinner concert and i wear a band t-shirt and i'm smoking oh. and drinking right. am i really rebelling <laughs> yeah or am i just we're, like we're, playing yeah. out a a, st a series a of, uniform, of instructions you know it's you not know? like they didn't make a million of those leonard skinner yeah. shirts and it's not like well and another another thing is my my dear friend peter uh -huh. is keyboardist in leonard skinner now and he was in psychofungal buzz i have him partially to think for me finally figuring out that alcohol was bullshit because you know usually when your friends are having some amazing thing happen for them you're the one trying to call and get some of their right. time and ride on their coattails right but it, during that period of time, I was so lucky, you know, the guy, he just keeps calling mm -hmm. me. And, and it's like for two weeks, he's calling me every other day. And I'm going, Pete, like, dude, you're the one that's in callbacks right now for Leonard Skinner. Mm -hmm. Like, you're going to get the gig. I know you're going to get the gig because you're such an amazing keyboardist. Why do you keep calling and bothering me? I'm, it's supposed to be the other way around. And he said, Johnny, because you need to go to a meeting, alcohol is holding me back and it's holding you back and I'm no more talented than you are and great things will happen for you if you get your shit together wow. and get sober. Wow. Yeah, that is a good friend. Yeah, I love him. I got to see him recently. Yeah, and I, I love the idea of doing this again, too. Yeah, no, absolutely. Oh, we, yeah, I got a bunch more questions. War stories, yeah, you know, I, story, I want to hear more stories. Um, funny stories in the road. But wait, you... You asked me, you said you looked back through a discography and you... I asked you about the Idiot Flash track. Oh, okay. Let me tell you that story. Um, mm -hmm. Idiot Flesh was so amazing, man. You know, they turned into a, a bigger thing before they split up and ended up getting to the point where they were pretty much carrying right. a freaking circus around with them. Yeah. You know, so nobody was making any money. Yeah. I, I love it when I I love it when I hear people say, Oh, you must be making money off <laughs> right. that local band. Yeah, yeah. We gotta pay ten guys. We all spend our money on costumes and <laughs> Oh my God, with them, by the time Idiot Flesh finally ended, they were to the point where they had like twenty five people in Yeah. Yeah, oh, a circus. It was performance art in a lot of ways, too. If you just search for Idiot Flesh Inflatables, you'll see the most incredible thing where they mm -hmm. had this instrumental that they wrote that that kind of worked yeah. in the sound of the vacuum cleaner. And you're going like, what are you talking about? <laughs> okay, so they, they rewired vacuum right. cleaners so that they blow air. Right. And then they had these things that they built that were attached to them that then filled up with air so that so-and-so had horns and so-and-so had <laughs> wings. And I mean, it was just out I of realize it's going to make noise and just incorporate yeah. it into the whole thing. Yeah. That's cool. They did. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I had this really cool unit that I really wish I hadn't sold called a Digitech IPS33B. And, and someday I'll get another mm -hmm. one because I still think it's a great unit. Basically, like in the 80s, somewhere in the middle to late 80s, Aventide, electronics company oh. Aventide, which was really top shelf stuff, they came up with something called diatonic harmonization. You know, harmonizers before that were able to, you know, do an octave below or an octave above, but it was always a static harmony, meaning the distance from whatever note you played to that note that it would then create using mm -hmm. digital sampling trick. That was always a, that was always a consistent, uh, consistent interval and then eventide came up with this thing that it still would get really confused if you put like a chord into it 
uh, there was a setting for that, and I kind of came up with his angelic sound that, that mm -hmm. made my guitar sound like keyboards at the time, and yeah. that was like so groundbreaking. But so anyway, I had this unit, and that was the unit that I was fucking around with when Tom Morello freaked out and <laughs> ran out of the dressing room and was like, what is that? And I showed him, I showed him how to do the bending thing, which of course turned out to be the solo in their first Holy you know, shit, hit. Yeah. just cracked me up. Because they started, they started making this thing called a whammy pedal after that, that did that, which cracked me up because I was doing it with my, I programmed my unit to do that, you know. And it's like this whole like idea of being ahead of your time is so funny because it's no good to be ahead of your <laughs> right, time. Right. Like, if you come up with great shit, all that's going to happen is someone's going to come along mm -hmm. and borrow it or appropriate it or whatever. And then they're going to go and use it on their hit when you're like, you know, trying to get a job as a file clerk, you know, and that's what happened to me. I, you know, the same thing happened with, um, with our music, like, you know, what, look at Limp Biscuit. As soon, as soon as the record labels had a band that was all white, <laughs> right. that wow, did the same yeah. kind of shit that we did, then they were all, they were all good to market. Uh -huh. They were like, oh, we can market this. <laughs> but they're so retarded. Capitalism <laughs> is so fucking retarded. No, Sorry, no, no, that's no, an no. offensive word, but like, they were yeah. like, oh, we don't know how to market you guys because there's a rap right. in the middle of this rock right. song. And there's black guys and white guys in the band, so we don't know if we're oh, supposed geez. to market you to soul radio or to rock radio. So I'm using I'm using this this unit at home, and I had this I had this synchronized right. tremolo thing going on, whoop, 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 you know. And I'm doing an arpeggiated guitar part in time with that square wave vibrato, as Dan Rathbun gotcha. calls it. You're, you're going mm -hmm. along with the wah wah wah. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going, boom, 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 and I'm playing this. I'm playing this pattern mm -hmm. in time with that. Yeah, let me grab a guitar real quick. That's probably out of tune. But so I'm going. I'm going like this. I'm going. Mm -hmm. You know. So I'm doing that, but it's in time with whoa, 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 whoa. You know. So I, you know, I came up with that main part, and then I came up with a B part where it goes to the four chord, and then I came up with a bridge where it does some kind of Beatlesque, mm -hmm. you know, tritone substitution seven chord shit, you know, where you know the Beatles were really clever in that way. So I, I'm throwing a bunch of that stuff in, and I came up with this thing. It was roughly three minutes long. Well, we were roommates at the time, and Gene was at the store. Gene's a Korean American guy, you know, first generation. And the store that we went to at that time was run by Koreans. And so it was funny because like he would go over there and get stuff and he'd pick up things for me if it was his turn to go. And then it was my turn to go to the store and I'd be like, Oh, how do you say thank you in Korean again? You know, and, <laughs> and, and, and you know, so it was his turn to go to the store. And while he was gone at the store for like, you know, eight or nine minutes, I, threw this thing down on the four track cassette machine. And then he came back and he heard it and he liked it. And he said, can I do a uh -huh. vocal on this? And I said, yeah. And so he sat there with headphones on at my four track, stopping and starting it like so roughly. And, and suddenly I was just like, ah, you know, I kept hearing <laughs> it in the other room, like my four track's going to break, you know, cause he's just mm -hmm. shuttling around on the, in the tape, you know, and, and he spent hours, you know, getting the words written and the vocal melodies and the tracks right on the four track. Oh, and then he brought wow. it to Idiot Flesh and they ended up doing the song. It's great song. Now, Nils never ended up doing the square wave vibrato thing, probably because it was really difficult yeah. to do that kind of thing at that time. And it still is. If you're going to do that kind of thing live with the band, it's usually smart to have the drummer play to a click. Yeah. That gets into a whole set of... It's still a hauntingly good wow. song. It's a really haunting yeah. song. I really like Drown. Like well, it ended up being a really desperate song about a couple that were heroin addicts, which cracked me up because that was like <laughs> yeah. one of the only drugs wow. we weren't doing. Yeah. Probably for the of best. Course, of course, every yeah. heroin addict hears a song and says, yeah. that's about heroin. <laughs> Oh no, there was there was there there was time for that later, you know. Yeah. I mean, I I did I tried pretty much everything, and it's a miracle that I'm alive. Yeah, I and I thank my yeah. daughter for that. You know? But yeah, so I was pretty stoked going to see Idiot Flesh, and there there they are performing my. That would song. feel good. Yeah. I wrote the music too. I didn't write the lyrics. Yeah. Well, they were my favorite band at the time. You know, it's like for a while, Primus was my favorite mm -hmm. band. You know, probably when I was like 17, and then I got kind of tired of Primus because it was the same mm -hmm. same. Oh yeah. Even though what they were doing was incredible, especially yeah. the drumming. Oh my God, the drumming was unbelievable. Mm -hmm. You know, when they made Suck on This, you know that record, Suck on This? Mm -hmm. It's a live yeah. recording from the Berkeley Square that my friend Matt oh, cool. recorded with an eight track reel to reel behind the stage. And 
And me and Paul, the drummer of Psychofungopus, were up there. We were there for that recording, and you can hear us. You know, when they do, Larry, you're a bastard. Larry, you're a bastard. You know, you can hear us. Because oh, me and Paul were right up in the front. And, and right before that show, Herb sat down with us and showed us how he played the drum <clears throat> pattern on the toys are winding down. Yeah, the double bass. Yeah. And that was just so fun because double kick was kind of a new thing the double yeah. pedal so how did how did funk become yeah. like part of your diet or at what point did it prior to playing in the band i mean you always uh i guess i know like it some of it throws back to or yeah or was parliament and well for me um, like disco was a thing and i laugh now when i look back at history of the late 70s early 80s because mm -hmm. you know the whole disco sucks movement was kind of like some of the first evidence i got that rock and yeah. roll in and of itself is kind of racist, you know, like, yeah, because everybody's like burning their disco records. Oh, we're getting into real rock and roll and they're listening to Ted Nugent and shit. And I'm yeah. like, OK, I like all this different stuff. I loved all the rock and all that. You know, I even like some mm -hmm. Western stuff back then, you know, but I just started realizing, oh, there's there's this whole cultural kind of tribal element yeah. to some of this stuff that's a little bit. Yeah, it's a little scary, you know, you see people's reaction to stuff. You can only be this kind of a music fan. Well, no, it's like, it's interesting to know why people like stuff, but it's also right. interesting to know why they don't like stuff. And like, if if all these people being free and easy and getting down in, in the gay dance club freaks you out, then maybe you have a few <laughs> issues that you might need to right. attend to, you know? The thing about funk is that at this point in my life, mm -hmm. I make a living playing funk guitar, basically. Like, Sure, I have to. I have to be able to do a bunch of other stuff in the cover band I play in, but the fact that I'm a pretty solid funk rhythm player figures heavily into what I do every weekend, mm. and it, it comes from Nile Rodgers pretty much. Like there are a lot of different funk guitar players that were good, but I think that my style of doing that is pretty much my best ripoff yeah. of Nile because of yeah. Rapper's Delight. Yeah, it did. Yeah. You know, because when I was 10, Rapper's Delight took over the world. Yep. You know, I was 10 or 11, and me and all my friends knew all the lyrics to that, just like all you guys yeah. did. Well, I mean, yeah, and the thing that kind of blows my mind is just that I've always been fascinated with California bands and those coast bands being a Midwesterner because, like, funk and reggae is just not part of our diet where we are at all. Right. Well, do you think it's because the people that play it just aren't there? A lot of that. Yeah, I think that is a big part. Of it. I mean, or the radio stations aren't there. Nothing is there to play. If you're going to be in a band here, it's, you know, you're playing rock and roll or you're playing metal or you're playing, you know now, what I mean? Ska started making its way into the scene. A little bit, like in, in, in college towns, like Springfield, Columbia, Missouri, Ska started coming in a little bit. And uh -huh. came in with punk, but like reggae and funk, not a lot. You know, I don't know. I guess that's interesting. And it sucks because that's where we had to get our funk music was from the Bay Area. It was from California. It was from, you know, other places on the coast. To be honest, it's like if you want funk, I wouldn't listen to us do it. It's like it's oh, like it's I like mean, blues. Yeah. It's like everybody thinks that blues has to do with a bunch of guys in Britain. Right. Totally missing <laughs> right. the point, you know. Right. But but I mean that's how I got into it and yeah. and it's almost like a cultural gateway drug you it know is. it's like then, I was playing funk before I really got interested in listening to it more and and yeah. I was lucky that I played with Paul and Adam because the two of them had this commonality where they listened to sure. Parliament and funk right yeah and and so we named our band after something from yeah the funk you know maybe. From, in the days of the Funkopus. In the days yeah. of the Funkopus, yeah. And I got to play with George, you know? I really lucked out. Sorry, but like when I was like 13, 14, I guess I got exposed at that right time to white, white bands playing funk, you know, <laughs> essentially. And then got, you know, it right. allowed me to look into like the Parliament Funk. You got the wild cherry scene uh, going on. Yeah. Right. Bootsy Collins, and, yeah, and just and going down. I saw Bootsy play in San Jose in 1990. Yeah. And all the guys from digital underground were there oh, you know great. he had michael yeah he had a bunch he had maceo and fred wesley mm. playing horn oh, you know wow. and, yeah. and it was such a killer show and then the guys from digital underground were there which i didn't know at the time that there were two twin brothers mm. and, mm. and so they would take turns playing humpty because because humpty dance was such oh. a big hit like i still like that. that was our welcome back like it was so funny our welcome back to the bay area after our first tour in 1990 was to drive 
you know, from the north, after having played some gigs in Oregon, we're driving back into the Bay Area and we're looking at the coast and we're going, oh my God, it's so beautiful here. We're so lucky to live here. Yeah. And then Humpty Dance comes on the radio <laughs> and they're like, this, <laughs> this dude's blowing up the charts and this band is from Oakland, California. And we're like, what? Fuck yeah. It's like <laughs> yeah. digital underground. You know, we were so stoked because we knew some of those guys. Mm -hmm. Well, funny thing is the only, the only person we knew in digital underground was Tupac. Yeah. You know, and he, he wasn't really officially a member of that band. He was more a dancer with right. him at the time when we knew him. He hadn't started rapping when I met him. Hmm. Hmm. And he lived in Marin for a while because he lived in Marin City, which is where Paul, our drummer, is from. Mm -hmm. And they knew one another. And so Tupac came out and watched a couple of our rehearsals. He's very quiet. Yeah. Very quiet. Wow. Um, but and, and I ended up having an epic conversation with him in 1992 that I'll never forget. Um, because Paul, our drummer, hooked us back up. He was like, hey, remember that really quiet kid that came and saw us rehearse? I said, yeah. And he goes, well, he's really come into his own as a person. I said, oh, really? And he goes, yeah, you and him talk about all the same shit. I want you guys to get together and talk. So we sat there in the parking lot outside Paul's place, which, you know, resembled a prison block because it was a manufactured ghetto, you know. I mean, I, dude, I didn't even know there was a ghetto in Marin County <laughs> yeah. growing up oh, until yeah. I met Paul Johnson. Wow. Yeah. They keep yeah. it a secret over there. You know, I mean, now they hide them everywhere. Well, yeah, my dad, yeah. it was, it was, it was HUD housing. Yeah. You know, my dad worked for HUD. So I, I said, dad, what's the deal with Marin City? He said, oh, it was built for the shipbuilders. Right. You know, it's shipbuilders housing that was temporary. And then it became this kind of lower income area yeah. that's huh. never been considered a real town. They have sheriffs there instead of actual cops. Yeah. And it's like I kept getting pulled over every time I dro dropped off Paul after rehearsal because they'd see a white guy and they'd be like, <laughs> well, obviously he's here to buy drugs. Right. The only reason yeah, that not heroin. Comes here yeah, that's good. Once again, ju jumping around. But um, do you need to wrap it up, man? It's. It's, it's getting close to the time you were saying. I don't want to. I think I think the conversation's been brilliant. I, I love hearing all these stories, and that's what we're kind of uh, all about: is telling stories. Well, I know I mainly just touched on stuff. Yeah. You know, one of the things I started saying was about Fungamungo mm -hmm. and how, because you mentioned Mordred, and then you mentioned Fungamungo. Yeah. They they have a band called Mofu. Oh, cool! That's a combination of guys from both of those bands. Oh, really? Cool. It's the ones that all still live here in the Bay Area. And so Mike, that brilliant Yeah, we'll check that, that out. That guitar player is just brilliant. Check man. He's so good. I I I use the gauge of strings I use because of Mike and he taught me how to get quickly up a pentatonic oh, scale. Cool. Like he's just he's just such an amazing dude and, and he's so full of positive energy. It's it's amazing. Like I I love those guys, man. Um but yeah, Mofu, Phantom Power did a gig with Mofu. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, all the Phantom Power stuff's out there, and all the stuff I did with Extraordinary Astronauts and Bluebeard and the solo album I put out in 2014. It's yes. all out there. It's on the internet. We'll do another one. All right. Yeah, cool. Great guy. I had a great conversation. Man. 